it was completely and from the beginning uh, deliberately segregated. Uh, uh, uh. And so the the FHA's uh, kind of statement of yeah. mission okay. on, yeah. uh, said, if a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that properties shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. You heard that there. That's author Gabrielle Robinson talking about the discriminatory housing practices from 75 years ago that made it very challenging for African Americans to own homes in nicer neighborhoods. More of that later, but first. Welcome to Round the Bend Now and Then, a podcast that shines a light on the South Bend and Mishawaka areas past and present. Through interviews with local business owners, leaders, and community members, our listeners and I learn together about all of the great people and great things going on in our community. As we also learn about South Bend and Mishawaka's history and how intertwined our past is with our present. About seven or eight years ago, I saw something online about a book called Better Homes of South Bend, an American Story of Courage. And of course, You know me by now. A book that had South Bend written on it definitely caught my eye. And then I started to read the description, and I was floored. I had never heard of this story before. Quote, In 1950, a group of African-American workers at the Studebaker factory in South Bend met in secret. Their mission was to build homes away from the factories in the slums where they were forced to live. Wow, man, those first two sentences of the description seem like something out of a novel. Met in secret. Their mission was. But you see, this wasn't fiction. This was reality. I continued to read the description a bit further. They came from the South to make a better life for themselves and for their children, but they found Jim Crow in the North as well. The meeting gave birth to better homes of South Bend and a triumph against the entrenched racism of the times took all their courage, intelligence, and perseverance. Now, I knew about some of the awful racial covenants that were written into some of our neighborhood's deeds that stated, basically, only white people are allowed to live here. And I knew that my very own neighborhood that I live in now and that I grew up in unfortunately once had those written in their deeds and bylaws. But I had never read a book sharing the actual stories from South Bend about the families that were impacted by all of these stated and unstated racist policies. I, of course, instantly purchased the book and read it as soon as it arrived. I was flabbergasted at the sheer will and perseverance that these families had just so they and their children could play double dutch in the street, smell the sweet smell of barbecue in the summer air, and at the same time proudly hold their heads high as these homes were theirs, not their landlords, theirs. The description on the back of the book ended with, author Gabrielle Robinson tells the story of their struggle and provides an intimate glimpse into a part of history that all too often is forgotten. In this episode, I meet with the author of the Better Homes of South Bend book, Gabrielle Robinson. We talk about how she learned about this story and why she wanted to write a book about it. She shares her journey writing it 
and the many, many wonderful human beings that she was able to form relationships with along the way. We talk about the awful housing conditions that many African Americans in South Bend were, basically, forced to live in, and how that sparked a group of Studebaker factory workers to do something about it. As you'll hear, their story is captivating and absolutely inspiring. Now remember, this is only a 45-minute podcast episode. To truly understand and feel the enormity of the Better Homes of South Bend Group's accomplishments, I highly encourage you to read the book. I included the link in the show notes, but you can also purchase it on Amazon or just Google it. Before we dive into our interview with Gabrielle, I just wanted to truly thank our listeners for spending your valuable time listening. It's made this work so meaningful to me, knowing that it's sparking memories in you. Literally, I've had people that I've never met email me or message me a personal story or a memory that was sparked just from listening to one of our episodes. I'm just so appreciative of you all listening and please continue to do that and continue to spread the good word and share the podcast with others. Next, you'll hear how Gabrielle, who was born in Berlin, Germany, has lived all over the place, but ultimately she just couldn't get away from good old sunny South Bend, Indiana. First, just tell us a little bit about yourself. My name's Gabrielle Robinson. Mm -hmm. I, after uh, most of my life living in different countries, different cities, uh -huh. I, unbelievably even to me, settled in South Bend and loved it. I really feel a sense of belonging here. Wow. When did you move and to South Bend? I moved over 20 years ago. Oh, you've been and here a while. I've been here a long time. But before that, I've just, you know, I lived in London. I lived in... New York, I lived in Vienna, I lived in Hamburg, I lived in Berlin. I mean, I was just everywhere. Wow. And in fact, I was I was a citizen of no country at all. Really? Because I moved so much. Really? Not even where you were born at at all? No. Uh, I'm I'm even now I'm a naturalized American, but awesome. I'm also a naturalized German. I'm not okay. a, I'm not a native of anything. Wow. Yes. Wow. So, and then, well, what brought you to sunny South Bend, Indiana? Well, at IUSB, okay. uh, I was at Urbana for 10 years. Okay. And then I got a divorce and wanted to leave. And uh -huh. I came here and I didn't think I'd stay. I thought I'm just passing through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you ended up just and I just And I really like it. And I think it's getting better all the time. Over the coming minutes, we provide some background to the housing situation for African Americans in South Bend and the times leading up to the creation of the Better Homes Group. Next, we talk about how the evils of Jim Crow are generally thought of in the South, but according to those that experienced it down there and moved north, there were still some definite similarities that they experienced. And when you hear Gabrielle or I say, the Better Homes members, we're talking about the group of folks who are the focal point of her book. They were a group of African-American Studebaker factory workers who, as you'll hear about, met secretly over the course of several years to purchase land and ultimately build new homes for their families. At the very beginning of the book, you did a wonderful job of describing how uh, South Bend was like for African-Americans early on. And uh, we talk about Jim Crow in the Southern states. It was bad up here, too. 
Yes. And uh, Sal Ben was no exception. So just talk to me in general about some of the discrimination that African-Americans faced in Sal Ben. Yeah, I love what one of them said. He said, um, all of the, just about all, uh, most of them, let's say, uh-huh. of the Better Homes members had come from the South. Right. And they came to get work in the defense industries okay. and coming north. And one of them said, I left the South to get away from Jim Crow. And then I met Jim Crow in the North. God. Because, uh, mm. yes. That I quote mean, hit me. Uh, that uh, it's just... And it was everywhere, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Dr. Wagner, whom I still was lucky to know, he died a couple of years ago okay. at age 104. Mm-hmm. Um, when he first came to town in 1948, mm-hmm. I think, he co- and needed to spend the night, he could not spend the night in a downtown hotel. That's horrible. He had to go to one of their um, near Pilgrim Church and so on. There uh-huh. was a hotel just for... African-Americans. And you had mentioned in the book too, even like the um, African-American speakers or visitors or something like that who came to the area couldn't stay at those downtown hotels. And you had mentioned one of them was called like the Ma Hodges Hotel and same thing. Yeah, that is awful. Colfax Theater, they had to go to a separate entrance. Right. This is the North. Yes. And um, they couldn't buy houses, of course. That's really what they... They lived in defense homes, mm-hmm. as they were called. You know, uh, these were federally built homes for, for workers. defense workers for yes. the war effort, right? And they were completely segregated. Mm-hmm. The ones for blacks were poorly built and were in the worst neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. The ones these people, the Better Homes people lived in, were, were on Prairie Avenue, right across from where the foundry was. Mm-hmm. The Studebaker um, foundry. The to Stud- our listeners, it's near, just south of the current police station um, in that area. Yes. Yep. And uh, it what abutted was Horses Alley and up from Horses Alley up to Western was Maggie's Court. These slums, were right? Slums. Yeah. Just terrible slums. They were actually in the paper a lot. And um, people, the council didn't really want to do much about it because it was mainly African-Americans. So, and, you know. And at the time, you mentioned newspapers. There was talk. Folks knew something was wrong with it, right? I mean, like there was talk about the substandard housing that they had. But like you yes. said, nobody wanted to do anything. There was There were voices speaking up. Right. But the people in power didn't. Didn't do anything. You heard her mention Horses Alley and Maggie's Court there and how awful the housing conditions were for the African-American families who didn't have many other options for housing. The Maggie's Court and Horses Alley slums were located right near where Four Winds Field is at now, where the public housing buildings of Monroe Circle are at on the south side of Western Avenue between Scott and William Street, and also that whole area between Williams and Chapin. I never even heard about Maggie's Court or Horses Alley until I was researching for the episode on the 1200 block of West Washington Street. I found an article from 1942, so this is a good decade prior to the Better Homes members' struggle to build new homes. Uh, During that time, there was already a public debate on what to do about, quote, clearing the slums there in that area. 
In that article, one of the plans was to build a housing project for African-American families near West Washington Street in the Liston, Orange, and Birdsell Street areas. In the article, an individual that is actually critical to the success of the Better Homes Group, attorney and state representative J. Chester Allen, was fighting against building the housing project out there. And he was pushing to have it built where the Maggie's Court and Horses Alley slums were at then. Basically, don't tear down properties to build it out there. Tear down the slums of Maggie's Court and build it there. The following words written in 1942 describe the squalor that many families were forced to live in. It is a virtual breeding place of juvenile delinquency and adult crime and is the center for prostitution and diseases of every description. It went on further to say that this area is to be found the highest per capita tuberculosis ration in all of South Bend. Next, we talk about all those nasty conditions and it's no wonder that these folks wanted better for their families. Talk to me about some of the conditions that some of the African-Americans were kind of forced to live in. Well, Maggie's court was just uh, horrendous. You know, I never saw it because by the time yeah. it was the rabbi, rabbi something. The um, um, public housing rabbi right there. Rabbi Schulman, yeah, I on think. On the corner of Western, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but it had at best cold water. Mm, yep. And usually there were so many people... Uh, crowded together mm-hmm. that um, the kids had to sleep on the floor. Mm-hmm. It was filthy. Yep. It was, trash wasn't picked up. It, mm-hmm. it, and it was dangerous too. You know, yeah. there were drugs and drunkenness. And, yep. And, and, it, and then weren't they also, some of the houses were very close to the factories. Yes. Like I mean, this about. was right... Uh, there's a railroad going across. Okay. Uh, it was right abutting to that Against railroad. Against the railroad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I've seen old pictures of the houses, may or may not have been the houses that the Better Homes folks stayed in, but there were houses a baseball throw away from those smokestacks and the factories. That can't be healthy. No, and the noise. And yeah. Our, and that's what these folks said. We haven't left the South. And to bring our children up in this, it was just no place for kids. Golly. And, you know, in the book, when you read it, you just think about not only the adults, but the kids, you know, like you want your kids to to come home in in a nice, clean, bright place. and, And they come home to squalor and that, you know, and their parents had to live there and their parents were working their tails off to 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 raise them. Oof. You just heard us talking about some of the slum-type housing that many families lived in. For perspective, I did get a few videos of what used to be the Maggie's Court area near Four Winds Field, and also where the Better Homes families lived right next to the Studebaker Foundry. You can watch those videos, complete with my own narration on the spot, off the top of my head. People driving past probably thinking I'm crazy talking to myself. Anyways, you can watch those on our Twitter page, our Facebook pages, or even on our brand new YouTube page. The link to our YouTube is in the show notes as well. Gabrielle shares how hard it was for African-Americans to purchase homes and live in areas that weren't in such putrid conditions. 
You describe it very well in the book, but for our listeners here, man, what were some of the reasons why it was so hard for African-Americans uh, to obtain homes in more desirable areas? Yeah, I mean, they were really up against not just local authorities uh-huh. or local practices, but a uh, discrimination by design. Yeah. A federally designed discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, they felt, I, I would just like to read Go. you a quote from the, both the National Association of Realtors okay. and the FHA, yep. which was started in 1930s, especially to bring working class and middle class people into homes. Yeah. At the time, you know, they saw it as, the government saw it as a bulwark against communism. Okay. They figured that if you own your own home, yep. you don't want to share everything right. anymore. <laughs> wow, that's so, a good point. Um, wow. So, but it was completely and from the beginning uh, deliberately segregated. Uh, uh, uh. And so the um, the FHAs, uh, I don't know what you would call it, kind of statement of yeah. mission. Okay, um, yeah. Uh, said, if a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that properties shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. And that's why we that's why um, protective covenants mm-hmm. are essential because they uh, they provide a basis for the development of harmonious, attractive neighborhoods. And then they go on to say that not only do they have to be segregated? Right. But you have to wall them off. They say natural or artificially established barriers will prove effective in protecting a neighborhood from adverse influences, including a prevention of infiltration of lower class op- occupancy. Unreal. And inharmonious racial groups. A big fancy way to say we don't want African Americans. Right. And that was, of course, the time that they built walls, mm. highways, separating, yes. yeah. you know, uh, cutting up the, the cities. And they really wanted to just fence it off. Now, by the time the Better Homes people came in just around 1950, 1948, mm-hmm. um, they had to moderate their language a bit okay. under pressure from the NAACP. Okay. But they did not moderate their behavior at yeah, all. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> kind of window dressing, they might say they were more accepting, but they still didn't. The FHA and everything still didn't change their behavior. No. Next, we dive into the book and I ask her how she discovered the Better Home story and why she decided to write it. Let's get into the book, yes. Better Homes of South Bend. And to our listeners, uh, you have to read it. You have to dive into it. I, if you are a lover of South Bend, a lover of our local history, if you don't know the story behind this book, you need to read it. Because um, it, living in such a diverse city that we live in, we have to understand that, that um, <laughs> we've come a long way. We do have a long way to go. But this book does tell a great story. And so first, how did you learn about the Better Home story? Um, and then how did you decide to write the book about it? Well, the story fell into my lap okay. in a way. Uh-huh. 
And at first I was reluctant to write about it because I wasn't familiar with the African-American neighborhoods uh -huh. or stories. Right. Or, you know, and I was from another country. But Leroy Cobb, who was the last surviving member of the original Better Homes group, uh -huh. was so insistent. He so wanted that story told. He said, even my kids don't really know really? the story. And nobody else knows it. And it is worth telling. And so, he wow. kept at me. And after a while, I thought, yes, I do want to do that. And I want to learn about a whole new segment. Yeah. The shocking thing, and I don't know how many people experience this today still. Uh -huh. I think quite a few when I take them on tours. I had lived already for, oh, I don't know, 15 years or so in uh -huh. South Bend. And I had never been in that part yeah. of the city. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't consciously avoided it. I wasn't even aware right. I was missing something. Right. But it just wasn't part of my past. Yeah, yeah. And by going there and by uh -huh. meeting the people, I have uh, really found a whole new group of friends. Wow. I've sort of become family with the Better wow. Homes people. I, it's just been a really enriching experience for me. That was totally unexpected. That's wild. And I didn't know that. So, so Leroy had, he had just tried to convince you and convince you because he wanted that story told. He wow. thought it was worth telling. Oh, it is. And uh, he, uh, turned out he had the minutes uh -huh. of the meetings. Yeah. So I had a lot of background. Plus, he had a fantastic memory. Uh -huh. And so he could remember all the people involved. Yeah. And he would bring them together at, at his house uh -huh. so I could meet as many as, you know, of the children. Correct. Now mainly retired yeah. themselves. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he introduced me to a lot of people. Yeah. That's and amazing. I began to feel really at home after at first being a little leery of, of course, there, you of know, course. Just... wow, that's, that's neat. And, and when you, when the listeners read the book, Leroy Cobb, he's mentioned throughout the book and, and, Absolutely. um, and he at the time was one of the young, he was the youngest, correct? He, he just turned 20 20th. when he joined. And, you know, the others were all in their forties, fifties, up to 70. Yeah. So he was, and he was just married and, uh. That's neat. Boy, you can just tell from reading the book that Leroy Cobb was one cool dude. We've heard all of the reasons and obstacles that were against African Americans owning homes. And I mentioned J. Chester Allen earlier from that 1942 newspaper. Fast forward a few years to the early 1950s, and he was the instrumental driving force behind organizing a group of African American Studebaker factory workers in their pursuit to build new homes in the 17 and 1800 blocks of North Elmer Street in South Bend, Indiana. Next, we talk about that and how the Better Homes group was created. In the 40s and 50s, African Americans were flooding into the city. I mean, there's work here. They're, they're flooding into here, but there was nowhere to live. And like you'd mentioned earlier, Maggie's Court was just slums. Right by the factories was just not safe. Um, and there were so many things going against African Americans to get homes. Like we just talked about mm -hmm. the, the banks weren't, the government was not underwriting the loans for the banks. The realtors were not showing them homes in, in the better neighborhoods. So there was tons going against them, but that didn't stop them. What did they do? 
What did a small person, what did a group of people, what did they form? What did they do? Um, they organized. That's, okay. And I think that may have been already under the influence of J. Chester Allen, a okay. black attorney who, mm -hmm. from the moment he came to South Bend from the East, he fought for racial justice. Yeah. And um, I think he said, we need to organize. If everyone individually will not get anywhere. Yeah. Uh, they incorporated. Okay. And they bought the land as Better Homes, Inc. So they had to form a corporation first to buy the land because they knew if one of them it had to be more of a corporation, not one person. And it was even more complicated. There was a, um, a white lawyer who was friends with Alan. Okay. Who had already had these lots. And I see. He actually bought them. Okay. And then sold them to better homes. I see. Um, I because see. otherwise they would never have gotten the lots. And that's and and so to our listeners, when we say the lots, it was kind of at the edge of a neighborhood where there was already a white neighborhood established, but then there were still room to be built. I mean, there was still exactly. still was plenty. There was room to grow more. So it would be like right now if you're driving through Granger and you see some subdivision where there's some houses built, but others are not. Yes, and and. They had purchased just lots of land there on North Elmer Street, 1700 and 1800 right. block. Yes, and that's exactly what it was. Up to the 1600 block, it was very much settled by white mm -hmm. uh, workers from Poland and Hungary and uh -huh. Germany and so on. Below, below that, after mm -hmm. that, it was very sparsely populated, yeah. but still all white. Uh -huh. And the school was all white. Mm -hmm. Marquette School Marquette was about five, school. five or six blocks yeah. um, east of there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's important for you to read the book to get the full details and background to everything behind the Better Homes of South Bend's journey. In short, up to this time in the early 1950s, Better Homes, Inc. had the land and the lots secured and purchased in the 17 and 1800 blocks of North Elmer Street. Uh, that area is on the northwest side of the city, kind of between LaSalle and Marquette schools. But even though they had the land, they were faced with so many more hurdles and roadblocks and letdowns that were thrown their way before their houses could even be built. We'll talk about all of that next. As soon as they started meeting, I mean, they had the blocks or they had the land, right? I mean, right. They moved fast. But not as fast as they would have liked. It still took four years. Because banks still wouldn't it give loans. It was horrible. Uh, and builders wouldn't build to code. I didn't realize that, that it was routine for builders to build, for black folks built below code. It was horrible. They had to fight for that. The city dragged its feet. Yep. It just took, and all the time they had to pay out money and they didn't have much, you know, for the lots, for uh, hiring other attorneys, for all kinds of permissions and so on. It was awful. So they got pretty desperate at times because they, the, the husbands had three jobs usually. They cleaned mm -hmm. offices before Studebaker, worked at Studebaker, and cleaned more offices after. Yep. The wives sometimes worked too, or the husbands had some other, um, you know, one mm -hmm. of them 
uh, was a, uh, had a veterans the GI, on the GI Bill. He got a little money. He got himself an education in fixing TVs. Okay. And so he made a little extra money mm -hmm. doing that. But they worked really hard and saved. Yeah. And some, uh, you know, got pretty desperate. They think they thought we'd never get out. Yeah, office. they were getting discouraged and stuff. Yeah. I'm saying it moved fast in a sense. They had that land fast, but then they to, had to, to land get to the fast. houses took forever. And yes. because of what you said, like even the damn streets didn't get paved for 10 years. I mean, right. just just to get the city infrastructure in, you know, the sewers and stuff. Right. And then they went through different contractors and and then the bank, yes. they, they had to find a, a banker they could trust. I mean, it was awful. It it was a real struggle, but they hung in there and they yes, had they some yes, they, they had some luck. So many unnecessary hurdles thrown their way. I asked Gabrielle what kept them motivated. All those setbacks, what do you think kept them motivated? I think the dream of uh, what Leroy said. Leroy uh -huh. was young and optimistic and yeah. so on. Uh, the dream of having their own house. That's what kept them going, just yes. to own that own home. Because that was something they hadn't expected. And once they had it, they, uh, Leroy would say, we would spend weekends uh, barbecuing out yeah. uh, the whole group. Uh -huh. And we would say, we never expected to have this. We would have never dreamt of having a place like this to call our own. That's so cool. That is so cool. Just so, man, that is so neat. And my favorite chapter in the book is towards the end called the Elmer Street Community. It basically describes the scene once the houses were built, the families moved in and got all settled in. There are pictures of the girls double dutching, neighbors smiling at cookouts and so forth. You can just get a sense of the pride they must have felt after having to battle for years just to own their own home. We talk about that next. The Elmer Street community chapter that you wrote about it, when you, you talked about the kids and they're describing like the cookouts, the barbecues, the um, just the pictures in there, just the girls in the street double dutching yes. and stuff like it to me, that had to be just the most unbelievable feeling for these folks and the children to live in such a supportive community. They can lean on each other. I think one of the guys said, yeah, I had like 15 dads. Because yes. every dad was, you know, yeah, on them. exactly. But all of that contributes to them being successful, like you talked about. Yeah. They're, they're probably happier. They, they're, they, you know, there's more clean community. They had a real sense of community. Yes. And the moving thing was when uh, Leroy would bring the children together mm -hmm. at his house, there's still, you could still sense this energy between them. It. Although they, you know, they don't see each other every day. And some had even to come from out of town. Yeah. Uh, from elsewhere but there was this kind of sense of community was still wow. there they were still all like brothers and sisters and they could probably be away for 10 15 20 years and be connected and right yeah. away you know because yeah. they they share something that a lot of people don't share together it meant so much to them and you know it meant so much to the kids that's actually something i had read about theoretically that uh -huh. it happens but i had not kind of seen it like this 50% of the kids of Better Homes went to college. That's amazing. They became teachers, school principals, an attorney, a professor. Um, 
and even the ones who didn't had really good jobs. Yes, yeah, the stable. electric company, but uh, water company, and so on. Really good, solid citizens. Yep. As Gabrielle pointed out in the beginning, it was Leroy Cobb, one of the original homeowners and members of the Better Homes group, who pushed and pushed her to write the story. And again, I could just tell through her writing that Leroy was just one cool dude. I asked her about him next. Leroy, I love reading about uh, uh, reading about him because he, he even reading about him here and then hearing you talk about him, he just seems like a neat a neat guy. He is. He was a real gentleman too. Yeah. You know, always well dressed uh-huh. and. Uh, <laughs> But again, you know, even he at 85 or Mm -hmm. something, he had a Cadillac because he had been really successful. He had learned so much from that experience. He had learned how to deal with authority, how to deal with banks, how property was important. And so he was quite well to do at the end. And he had a Cadillac. Uh But occasionally the police would stop him and ask for his registration because here was this black man cruising along in a Cadillac. And if I had cameras down here, you'd have seen my face. <laughs> yeah. That's awful. And That's awful. he was a real gentleman. I yeah. Mean, had, you could uh, tell. I, yeah. You could, you could just tell. Um, and it must have been one of the most unbelievable feelings for him at 20 years old or 23 years old or whatever to own his own home. Yes. And he, I, he paid it off in 17 years. That dude had a paid off house by the time he was 40. He saved and saved, you know, and he worked hard and he didn't mind. I said, wasn't that, you know, really very different? And he said, no, I didn't mind. I had my health Uh and I could do it. And I knew what I was working for. Hey, no, is is he he still alive or? No, no, he died a few years. But he saw, that's one reason I rushed the book a bit because I want, he was healthy when I met him, but I wanted to be sure. And he wanted to be sure. Yes. He was. We did events together. We okay. were on TV together, nice. and uh, I got the um, his state historic marker on Elmer Street, yes. which is the first one for African Americans. And he was there to talk, Good. and so Good. he got to enjoy it. In writing a book like this, it involves meeting with and talking with so many different people. And kind of like me starting this podcast, I'm forming relationship with folks that I normally wouldn't. I mean, who would have ever thought that I'd have Mayor Roger Parent in my basement studio? Anyways, I asked Gabrielle if there was somebody that she admired or learned most from. You talked to a lot of different people for, for the uh, Better Home story. Like, what? What person do you do you admire the most, or what person did you learn learn the most from? Well, it's, in a way, there were two. Okay. Uh, one was Leroy, okay, because you know he really introduced me yes. into that world and into yes. the people. But the other one, he passed away recently too. Uh, J- uh, John Charles Bryant, okay, are you familiar with mm-hmm. the name? Well, he is the unofficial black historian of really? South Bend, or was. Uh huh. And he took me around. He was not a conceptual man as much, but he knew everything. We would okay. go, we would drive around and in, in the on the uh, west side. Yeah. Every house. He knew not only who lives there now, but who lived there generations ago. Really? And he can tell me their stories. Uh-huh. And he often knew them. Yeah. Um, his 
mother in particular was very well uh, connected mm -hmm. uh, to the African-American mm -hmm. community. And he came from the Powell family, which was one of the earliest yes, families. Early, one of our early families here. So, and he's a member of the Powell family. Okay. So he's really well connected. What was his name again? John Charles Bryant. Okay. Oh, I think I've heard of him. Yeah, I think I have. Um, yeah. He really was amazing. Just helped and you. Every time, and sometimes I had a question and he couldn't answer it, but he would call down Aww. to wherever, to the south, to yeah. the east, to New York, and get me in touch with someone who had the answer. You know, about all the churches, the church histories. Yes. Um, Pilgrim and Greater mm -hmm. St. John, which were right there, where, where there yeah. was a thriving black community mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Birdsell Street and Linden Street. West Washington, and, Birdsell, yeah, Linden, and all that exactly. stuff. Yeah. Um, and he would get me in touch with people who could give me the whole, I mean, I couldn't put it all in the book by any means, but all the history about That's cool. all these. So he was amazing. That has to be, that, as a writer writing this book, you're just, you're yearning for information. And that has to be such a good feeling to have somebody who, who you know, can, can lean on you. And then the extra um, the extra, I don't want to say barrier, but the extra issue of going across cultural lines. Um, that's different, mm -hmm. you know, it is. And he was able to connect you and. Yes. And yes. Cool. I mean, we really trusted each yeah. other. He trusted me and. Yeah. Uh, that's neat. And it was really a great experience for that's me. And cool. I learned so much. I often miss him now. I said, oh, I would like to ask yeah. Ron Charles. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's neat. That's cool. Oh, yeah. I looked up John Charles Bryant, and he was in or wrote numerous different Tribune articles about our African-American's history. So get this. There's going to be a play about the better homes of South Bend story. How cool is that? We discuss that next. Better homes of South Bend is a play, right? It will be called Better Homes. It will be called Better Homes. Talk to me. Let's, let's talk about it. <laughs> well... Um, it will be performed by the Civic Theater okay. from um, November 10th to 19th. So did they did they approach you about a play or they? No. Um, uh, Aaron Nichols, the, okay. the um, executive director of the Civic, mm -hmm. wanted to play and asked me would it, I be okay with it. And I said, okay. of course. And he commissioned this really wonderful playwright from American University okay. in D.C. What's her name? What? Uh, uh, Colleen Jennings. All right. And uh, she's written quite a number of plays, uh -huh. and they're performed maybe mainly in the East. Okay, but, okay. Um, but this will be the world premiere of... Uh, oh, better so homes here, and it, it's going to be really moving. I think, I'm sure. and it, you know, it fo a play can't tell the story of no. everything and so on. So it focuses on one family okay. in a way. Yeah, and but that gives it a lot of yes, emotional impact. Yeah, it it, it does. It, it makes it more human. It humanizes it. It's it's the it's these are human beings. I mean, this you know. So and for for you, that has to be unbelievable because here's something that a gentleman was trying to you know just convince you to write a book <laughs> to share you know and then so you you write the book and you 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 get in there and you you're, you're hanging out with people who you never would have most likely and and you're learning and then 
seven years later, a play. Yes, I was certainly surprised by that. I've written quite a number of books, but none of them has been made Turned into, into a, play. a play. Yes, but it's it's um, a great story that needs to be told. It's it will be nice to to get the stories, and I'm also excited that Aaron and um, the schools are so interested in Good. getting students to come because yeah. they would, on an emotional level, get this history and yeah. understand it without you know, having to read textbooks and yeah. stuff. That is so neat. I cannot wait to see it. I knew that Gabrielle was involved in a project highlighting housing discrimination over the years. So I asked her about that next. So this book is kind of closely tied to um, Undesign the Red Line, and that's uh, um, a project going on around here at the library, and it's going to spread. Is that right? Right. Um it's a national project mm-hmm. which is trying to explain to cities the importance what redlining has done and okay. the very far-reaching consequences uh-huh. of redlining. But then each community or each city, I'm not sure how many there are I by see. now, can also have their own in there. And it's also all interactive. If you go there and you have a story to tell, you can press a button and record that okay. and and so on. And it's talking about really the inequality by mm-hmm. design. That's mm-hmm. why they call it undesigned because it was originally redlining was designed. It wasn't an accident. I see. Yes. You know, it was purposeful. It was purposeful. And this is mm-hmm. to undo that. And so if you get a chance, it's at the library right now. It will be at the Civic Theater okay. after that. And... Um, then at the, Is it the History, History Museum, Museum. Okay. and then eventually at the Martin Luther King Jr. Center. Wow. The new Martin Luther King Jr. The new Martin, exactly. Neat. And I, uh, over the wintertime, I was at the library and I checked out the, the Undesigned the Red Line and my neighborhood that I live in. You know, right here, <laughs> it was Sunnymead is, had covenants in their, sure, they all in their deeds. Yeah. Yes. Unbelievable, and when you when you our listeners go there, there's a map and there's little thumbtacks on there, and it is interactive. And, yes, uh, and it's just I don't know, it's sad, but it needs to be shared, right? And people need to understand that how far we've come, and we still have far to go. We so, still have a ways to go. Yes. Yep, yep. We wrap it up next, and I share an advertisement that I found in a 1956 South Bend Tribune. And the irony is simply too much. I found a newspaper article from uh, 1956. Okay, oh, so it's a few years into after yeah. the, the the Better Homes people had um, had formed it. So this is an this is all this is is an is an advertisement. Now I, I'll email it to you. When oh, I done. would love to see it. Uh-huh. Yes. It's just an advertisement for Broadmoor uh, subdivision, which is by. Scottsdale Mall area, south mm-hmm. of town. Okay. So today, visit a new model. This is in the South Bend Tribune. Today, visit the new model home, Broadmoor, only $650 down to veterans in low FHA terms. We'll move your family into a beautiful new three bedroom ranch home in Broadmoor. The far south- southeast side of the city offers you finest living, a new shopping center underway, new school, protected location. Then here's the kicker. It says, 
for better community, better terms, and better homes. I saw that better homes. Yes. And I thought, what in the world? So here, first the better homes and the better homes group, I just thought it's ironic, but here's this advertisement Mm -hmm. for, for veterans. Come on back veterans. You just fought for our country. FHA loans will give you low, no low or or low uh, loan terms. Again, African-Americans could not ever move there. No. I thank you for listening to another episode of Round the Bend Now and Then. And thank you so much, Gabrielle, for coming on and sharing your journey with the Better Homes book and the story surrounding it. Again, I highly, highly encourage our listeners to purchase the book and also check out the other books that Gabrielle has written. Her website is in our show notes. As always, be sure to download and subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you prefer. And remember to share the show with a friend. Join us again next time and learn more about South Bend and Mishawaka's now and then.